servant of God, Sister Thea Bowman once said, I think the difference between me and some people is that I'm content to do my little bit. Sometimes people think they have to do big things in order to make change, but if each one would light a candle, we'd have a tremendous light. Welcome to the 60th episode of St. Dimpness Playbook, the SDP, if you want to be cool, a production of the Grexley Podcast Network. My name is Tommy. I'm a cradle Catholic, a marriage and family therapist, a husband and father of five boys, four on earth and one in heaven. Love you, Luke. And I'm here to fill the void of Catholic conversations about mental health because I want us to remember that we can do small things with great love and it will change lives. So let's all vow to do the work God puts right in front of us every single day. We like to kick it off around here with a quick refresh of our notifications. It's time for St. Dimphna's Mentions. First up, there's always a lot of news and commentary around emotional support animals, and if there's ever been a time to explore the importance of these pets in our lives, this seems like it. From Discover Magazine, even limited interaction with dogs and other animals can have a beneficial impact on humans. Last year, Patricia Pendry, a human developmental researcher at Washington State University, led a study that tested college animal visitation programs where domesticated animals are brought on campus during exam week to provide stress relief for students. Researchers divided 249 participants into four groups who were then given 10 minutes to interact with dogs and cats to varying degrees. One group was allowed to pet the animals, another watched dogs receive pets, (laughs) and a third was simply shown images of dogs. The participants' saliva was tested for cortisol, a stress hormone, before and after, and the researchers found that cortisol levels significantly decreased among students who were directly petting the dogs during that 10-minute interval. Spending time with dogs can also help those struggling with serious mental health issues such as PTSD. In a study published in March, Florida Atlantic University nursing researcher Cheryl Krause Perelio and her colleagues looked at how walking with shelter dogs impacted veterans suffering from PTSD. Over the course of four weeks, 33 veterans took part in weekly 30-minute dog walks, and the scientists measured psychological and physiological stress indicators like cortisol levels and heart rate. Uh, heart rate variability. Among the participants both before and after the strolls, a control group walked with another human instead of a dog. The study found that walking with dogs tended to decrease signs of PTSD, particularly variability in heart rate, in veterans with severe symptoms more than walking with another human. Krauss-Perelio says that the study is preliminary, but it does suggest animals can help relieve the effects of PTSD. You know, I've personally seen the incredible impact dogs can have in the group home setting for children. Uh, We would have therapy dogs come by and hang out with the kids in a group home I worked at as a therapist, and the entire feeling of the environment changed in the time the dogs were there and long after they left. It was so much more than I could do as a therapist, honestly. Just something so peaceful about these companions that don't ask questions, don't ask you to explain yourself, and just sit with you and support you in your suffering. It's, it's really a great lesson that we can learn on how to help our loved ones when they're suffering. On to the next topic, reparenting came up recently in a conversation I was having with a friend, and I thought it'd be worth exploring here. First off, what is reparenting? We'll allow Takespace.com to help us with little definition. Reparenting is when a therapist takes the role of a concerned and trustworthy parent 
so that a client can learn what a trusting relationship is like. It helps an individual repair attachments and develop more secure and healthy relationships. Reparenting is based on the belief that many psychological issues stem from a child growing up without his or her needs being met. The child is not made to feel secure and unconditionally loved, so they grow up to be an adult who can't navigate relationships and life as well as they should. Reparenting deals with three theoretical aspects of an individual. They are the adult, the inner child, and the parent. The adult is the individual today, the inner child is the childhood stage at which the individual was wronged, and the parent is a therapist who gives the right response the child should have received. Reparenting is going back to the stage in which the adult was wronged as a child and satisfying or making peace with the inner child hidden inside. This is done by giving the satisfactory response and fulfilling the needs that were required at the time by self-counseling or therapy. So just to give a little bit on what you could do to engage in this type of therapy on your own before getting connected to a therapist if you're interested, you can start by trying affirmations that start with I am. For example, I am a loving human. Talk to your adult self and ask for help with grown-up stuff. Give yourself daily rewards. Get at least eight hours of sleep. Read literature and inspiring quotes. Write in your notebook a list of things to do on a daily basis. Stay in the present moment by practicing mindfulness and think about good memories. So remember, with all therapeutic modalities, the key to if it will work is all about who you are as a person. We are all the best expert on ourselves, so we have to have an honest look at our personalities and at the different modalities of therapy available to us, and then see what feels right, what modality will click with us, and go with that because that's going to be the one that we're going to find the most success with. So each episode, I'm going to introduce you to a saint who can help us along our journey with mental health and wellness as Catholics. It's called Friend Request, and today I'm here to share a little bit about Saint Aloysius Gonzaga. My deepest regrets to Aloysius, if I'm pronouncing his first name wrong, and even more my deepest regrets to the listeners whose ears are just going to feel like I'm putting my nails on chalkboard every time I say it. Born in 1568, Aloysius was the eldest of seven children. As a son of a princely family, he grew up in the royal courts and army camps. His father wanted him to be a military hero. Franciscan media helps us get the big picture. At age seven, Aloysius experienced a profound spiritual quickening. His prayers included the office of Mary, little office in the house, the Psalms, and other devotions. At age nine, he came from his hometown of Castiglione to Florence to be educated. By age 11, he was teaching catechism to poor children, fasting three days a week, and practicing great austerities. When he was 13 years old, he traveled with his parents to the Empress uh, and the Empress of Austria to Spain and acted as a page in the court of Philip II. The more Aloysius saw of court life, the more disillusioned he became, seeking relief in learning about the lives of the saints. Back to me. So while growing up, Aloysius witnessed the murder of his two brothers, and this was the event that had a profound impact on him for the rest of his life. Interestingly, the spiritual awakening that he had was prompted by a severe illness that led to him having to slow down, and he, he filled his time with reading about the lives of the saints, which inspired his growth and holiness. He's an incredible example of a saint who walked through so much suffering in his journey with Christ, and one who offered his suffering to Christ in a profound way, eventually dying while taking care of those sick from a plague that broke out in Rome during the late 1500s. He is most definitely a saint ready to intercede for all of us during this present moment in history.
We like to close out this part of the podcast with a prayer, O St. Aloysius, adorned with angelical manners. Although I am an unworthy servant, I recommend to thee in a special manner the chastity of my soul and body. I conjure thee by the angelical purity, by thy angelical purity, to commend me to Jesus Christ, the spotless lamb, and to his most holy mother, the virgin of virgins. Preserve me from every grievous sin. Never suffer me to sully my soul with any impurity. Whenever thou seest me in temptation or danger of sin, ward off from me every impure thought and affection, and awakening in me the remembrance of the eternity of the Christ crucified, imprint deeply in my heart the sentiment of the fear of God. Inflame me with a divine love, in order that by imitating thee on earth I may merit to enjoy God with thee in heaven. Amen. And now you can't do therapy over Twitter, but I'm happy to take your tweets and help you explore a bit in the hopes of finding a light in the darkness. It's time for Twitter therapy. gets us started as an autistic person I struggle with low self-esteem I try to look at the bright side as a Catholic but it's so tough when you hear things you don't want to I could use any ideas for that and for when you feel overwhelmed in social situations so let's start by praying for Brian for an openness to neurodiversity in our church and our world and for all of us who feel overwhelmed our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil amen I feel so blessed that you sent this question in, Brian, because I think it's so important for us to explore coping strategies for dealing with feeling overwhelmed. First off, I think it's important to remember that you're not alone. Feeling overwhelmed, struggling with self-esteem, and not knowing how to handle the anxiety brought on by these difficult situations impact so many of us. And while that might not make things better in and of themselves, it often does feel comforting to know that we're all in this together. Some important tips for dealing with these feelings, especially for those of us who may be on the spectrum, including or include making a list of those situations that feel overwhelming so that we can see where our triggers lie and taking the time to slow down when we think about those situations to find where the anxious feelings begin and what brings them on. Next would be to practice some calming strategies and developing a toolbox to give us the skills to pull out when we need them in the moment. Things like counting slowly to 10 or taking five deep breaths or even closing our eyes for a few moments. Using visual techniques can also help, like picturing the events that are coming up that we might know will make us feel overwhelmed, or even rehearsing stressful situations ahead of time to help us feel a little more at ease when the actual situation comes up. Remember, it's always an option to reach out for help too, to reach out to a therapist who can help guide you in creating that toolbox and practicing those techniques to help give that boost to your esteem until you're ready to engage on these techniques all on your own. Anne is up next. Perhaps you could discuss alcoholism in a friend or relative who refuses treatment. Today is the funeral of a neighbor who refused such help. Let's please stop what we're doing and pray for Anne. All of us desperately wanting to help someone who doesn't think they need help. For those suffering with the pain of addiction, and especially for Anne's neighbor, that their soul may be in heaven with our Lord 
and Our Lady. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen. And this is such a difficult situation and one that most of us have experienced in our lives in one way or another. A friend or loved one who is suffering either with mental illness or addiction and they refuse to seek treatment. We feel frustrated, lost, hopeless, and we don't know where to turn. Before I continue on too much, I want to make sure to recommend Al-Anon, an organization for people who are worried about someone with a drinking problem. To anyone who finds themselves in this situation, look into your local groups and get involved with them so you can have someone to talk to and meet with, and and you get to spend time with others who've walked through this difficult journey in their own lives. Next, I want to turn to VeryWellMind.com. One of the most frustrating factors in dealing with alcoholism is it is almost always accompanied by a phenomenon known as denial, a refusal to admit the truth or reality of the condition. With denial, a person with alcohol use disorder has impaired insight into their condition. Denial is a common symptom of alcohol use disorder, and it can keep the person from seeking treatment. Friends and family members can also become involved in the denial. Signs of denial include blame. The alcoholic blames his drinking on other people, situations, or bad luck. She makes me so mad I just have to drink. If my job wasn't so frustrating, I wouldn't need a drink. Uh, concealing the alcoholic begins to hide his drinking from others and deny that he is drinking when they ask him about it no no that's just a breath freshener you smell Uh, yeah oh I stopped at the bar to say hi to the guys but that's all just to say hi defensiveness is next the alcoholic defends his drinking as a choice it's my body and my life it's nobody else's business dismissing is next the alcoholic refuses to talk about his drinking or dismisses it as a problem let's not talk about it now okay or stop nagging me about drinking the next is false agreement the alcoholic agrees that he has a problem and to take action but never does like yeah i need to cut back this one this is my last drink making comparisons is next the alcoholic may excuse his drinking to himself or others as being normal uh not an excessive not excessive at all right like i don't drink as much as charlie and he's not having any problem or at least i'm not drunk all day like my dad was rationalization is last the alcoholic explains his excessive drinking in a way that makes it more acceptable like i only had two or i haven't even had a drink in a week Back to me. Of course, this denial is a defense mechanism employed to keep us from having to face to face up to what's going on in our lives or, or perhaps to face our emotions that we keep buried down. And the hard part is that sometimes family and friends can start to participate by protecting the person struggling with alcoholism, calling out for work on their behalf, bailing them out of jail again and again, and even making excuses for, for uh, them in other situations. But by doing these things, we're actually protecting our loved one from the consequences of their actions that might actually spur on the decision to get help. So what can we do? We can adjust our approach to the situation and adjust our attitude toward the problem. Again, very well mind, uh, share some ideas and they might not apply to your situation and, but they might be helpful for others. We have to stop blaming ourselves. We have to stop taking things personally. And remember, alcoholism is a disease and at some point our loved ones aren't in control. 
We have to stop trying to control it and be open to letting a crisis happen. It's so hard, but it might be the thing that pushes them in the right direction. We have to stop trying to cure the alcoholism. It's a disease that requires treatment by professionals. We have to stop covering it up, something we touched on earlier when we were discussing the importance of not protecting our loved ones from the consequences. We have to stop accepting unacceptable behavior, and we have to stop having unreasonable expectations. So I'll leave it with these healing statements that we can repeat to ourselves as a way of taking care of our own mental health in the midst of a difficult situation like this. I no longer have to deny the presence of addiction in our family. I no longer have to control the addict's using. I no longer have to rescue the addict. I am no I no longer have to listen to the addict's reasons for using. I no longer have to accept or extract promises. I no longer have to seek advice from the ill-informed. I no longer have to nag, preach, coax, or gesture. I no longer need to allow the addict to abuse me or one of my children. I no longer have to be a victim of addiction. Anonymous wraps us up today. About two years ago, I started struggling with really bad anxiety. I'd never had any mental health issues before, and I was wondering at the time how long someone should be struggling before you seek professional help. I was about one month in at this time with progressively deteriorating issues, and I looked it up, and it said that you should wait six months. Is this true? The last and most serious part of this question is that after a couple months, I thought about it and got to the point where I told my parents, I told my parents about it. I was 22 at the time and on my parents' insurance. I reached this point where I wanted to solve it on my own and thought about how I had always been very active my whole life, being uh, biking all the time and playing sports often during this entire time I was struggling with anxiety. I was just not exercising at all. I also was not sleeping very much, so I started exercising every day, spending more time in the sun, and also prioritizing my sleep, and my anxiety went away, and I've had no issues since then. The reason I'm asking uh, is that when you when people talk to me about their mental struggles, I want to recommend a, me- a mentally healthy lifestyle, but how do I do this without diminishing the importance of seeking professional help? I want to make it more like your hypertension example where we can recommend a healthy lifestyle while also promoting professional help. Okay, so there's a lot here and a lot of important topics to touch on, but let's start, as always, by praying for everyone living with anxiety that they may experience the peace of Christ in their hearts this very moment. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. All right, let's start with the first question here. How long someone should be struggling before they seek professional help? You looked it up and it said that people should wait six months. Is this true? The answer here is you should seek professional help whenever you feel like it might be the right time to seek professional help. For me, putting a time limit on this really leads to a lot of unnecessary suffering, and I want to encourage people to get help whenever they feel ready. You have to remember that you are the best expert on you, and if you feel like you've been having this weird anxiety for the past week that feels different than anything you 
you've been through in the past, you shouldn't feel like you should have to wait through six months of suffering before you get help. The six-month idea that you came across in your search is probably more about how long symptoms need to be present for a diagnosis to officially be given, but that doesn't mean we have to suffer for that long before a therapist or doctor would take our symptoms seriously and want to help us. The second part of the question you brought up is also super important for us to think about. The things you mentioned, uh, you said, I'd always been very active my whole life during this entire time I was struggling with anxiety. I was just not exercising at all and was also not sleeping much. So this is super important because we have to use this skill looking at our behaviors and our level of functioning to assess how we're doing. You were able to look at those things you used to do and see you weren't doing them anymore and that helped you to realize you needed to take action to help yourself. And that's awesome. That shows a lot of strength and motivation and it's just so fantastic and it's even better to hear that you got back into the groove and started to feel better trying to do these things eating right getting a good night's sleep exercising and getting our bodies moving these are all important first steps when we're trying to tackle mild to moderate anxiety and depression however we have to realize that sometimes those things a can't happen because we're too anxious or depressed to have the energy or motivation to do them or b sometimes those things just don't work and we have to be open to reaching out for help from a mental health professional to start finding wellness to use that example i go back to time and time again sometimes people have hypertension because of a bad diet and lack of exercise and they might find wellness simply by getting those things back on track but there are also people like me who have been diagnosed with hypertension but have good health according to lab work other than that, pointing to a biological issue that diet and exercise might help but won't entirely solve. And so for people like me, medication is important. And I think we have to realize that mental health works in a similar way. Some of us might find all the wellness and healing we need through exercise, good sleep, and proper diet, but there's a large group of us who need more. Therapy, medication, other treatments, and both are okay. All right, everyone, that's it for today's episode. Remember, you can email, DM, or tweet your questions and situations. If you'd like me to address them in the future, I'd be happy to keep you anonymous or not, whatever you want. Be sure to check out patreon.com slash grexley to see all the great things they've got going on over there and support the cause. Until next time, go easy on yourselves. Take care of yourselves. And if you feel like you're in a place where you can't even bring yourself to pray, don't worry. I'll be praying for you. And so will St. Dymphna.